Today's text is found in Luke chapter 1, verse 67 to 80. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find that text in your bulletin. Luke 1, verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, for the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in, for, in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is God's word. Thank you, Reese, uh, and uh, thank you for the reminder as well. So, uh, Reese prayed for Eddie as he's preparing for baptism. A number of you have asked me when when that's going to be. So uh, the plan is, anyhow, that Eddie will uh, be baptized on January 14. So if you want to make sure you're here for that, now you know when it'll be. There you go. Um, <clears throat> you can find an outline for the sermon. Uh, at the back of your bulletin, um, it, it, there's only two points, so it looks like things will be short and sweet. There's only two points in part because I was, I was half struggling to figure out my points <laughs> when, uh, when my deadline loomed. Uh, and so these are the main headings, but there's, there's other stuff coming underneath it. Just be aware of that. So that doesn't mean things will be longer necessarily, just uh, clearer, I hope. Um, also, we, uh, we do take questions often at the end of a, a, a message for clarification, and if you're uh, a guest with us this morning, uh, just making you aware of that. If you don't want to raise your hand to ask your question, you can certainly do so by um, uh, texting me. Uh, my phone number is in the bulletin, and I do have my phone here with me. Anyhow, for nine months... Nine months, Zechariah couldn't talk. And if you read the story of Zechariah very carefully, he probably couldn't hear either. There's a little bit of disagreement among scholars about whether he was simply a mute or if he was a deaf mute, but I think the balance of arguments uh, point toward the fact that he was probably not just unable to talk, but he was unable to hear too. He... He was a priest, and his division of priests, he worked with a team of priests, it was their turn to go and serve at the temple in Jerusalem. So he said goodbye to his wife Elizabeth, and off he went to the temple to go to work. And while he was there, 
uh, lots were drawn between the different priests about who would get a very special privilege. And that privilege was to go from the, the outer court into the inner court of the temple and um, offer up incense before God on behalf of the people. And Zechariah was the guy who was chosen. That's a big deal. That's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Because when you come out from doing that, you also get the privilege of being able to bless God's people. There would be a multitude, a huge crowd of people standing out in the courtyard, and you would get to bless them in the name of God on his behalf. And this is what awaited Zechariah. But he goes into the inner court, he goes into the holy place, what's called the holy place, and he comes out, and the people are waiting for him to bless them, and... He starts going and starts making gestures and hands, you know, hand gestures and signs and stuff like that. The guy can't talk. What happened? He's the only one who knows. See, while he was inside in the holy place, he was visited by an archangel. Now, there's, there's a hierarchy of angels in the, uh, in the angelic military. I guess you could call it, and Gabriel was a top angel. He was the messenger of God. And as we saw last week, he was starting to visit people again after God had been silent for four centuries. And he visited Gabriel, or sorry, he visited Zechariah, who was a very old man, and he said to Zechariah, Guess what, Zechariah? Your prayers have been answered. This is a prayer that you had been praying for many, many, many years, and it had gone unanswered. And in fact, you probably, you probably stopped praying it after a while because you figured, well, this ain't going to happen now because I'm so old. But guess what? Your prayer has been answered. Your wife, Elizabeth, is pregnant. She's going to have a son, and he's going to be one special kid. Well, Zechariah doubted that. He said, uh, what? <laughs> and so he was disciplined for it. In verses 19 and 20, it wasn't part of our text. It's a little earlier in uh, the Gospel of Luke. It says this, I am, so he says, what? That's not going to happen. Yeah, right. And then the angel says, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you didn't believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now notice something about this kind of discipline he undergoes. It says, until the day that these things are fulfilled. Gabriel doesn't tell him what part of his message needs to be fulfilled in order for Zechariah to get his voice back. So is it when the kid's born? Is it when the kid grows up and gets to and starts doing its ministry, his ministry? Is it when this Messiah who has prophesied in what Gabriel had told Zechariah gets revealed? Like, Zechariah has no clue how long he's going to be without the power of speech and probably without the power of hearing, all because he didn't believe. Now, here's my question. What, what would you do if something like that happened to you? If you were completely silenced, isolated, cut off from the outside world, you were alone with yourself, let's put it that way, no distractions, just you with you, 
Interestingly enough, psychologists have done all kinds of experiments around this theme. And the fact is, is that uh, most people are terrified of the prospect. They are terrified. Solitude is the last thing most people actually want. You say, I know, you're saying, what? No, not me. I would love some time by myself. I'm just so busy all the time. I, I can't get time by myself. No. Listen, most of you would be terrified to be alone with yourself for any length of time. Uh, most people hate having nothing to do. It freaks them out. Uh, because what happens when you're quiet and you have time alone, when you have nothing to entertain you but your own thoughts is you start to think. <laughs> and what do you think? You, you think about yourself. You think about your life. You think about the world. And usually it leads to a measure of unhappiness because you discover you're not actually all that happy with yourself. You're not all that happy with your life. And you're not all that happy with the world. And so it's better to be distracted. I mean, you try to be quiet, but then ding, there's a notification. Ding, there's a message on Facebook. Ding, I got another Snapchat. Zechariah was alone with himself for nine months straight. And you know what? During that nine months, he did the very thing we're talking about. He evaluated. He thought long and hard about the message that he heard about his life, about the future, about the world, about the things that really matter. Now, probably at first when he was plunged into this silence and he was all alone in this silence and he didn't get to, to share his experiences with anyone, the first thing he did was he beat himself up and he went, stupid, 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 stupid. I mean, it's Gabriel. He's an angel of God. He, he, he's obviously... What he says is going to be true. Why didn't you just believe him, Zechariah, you dummy? That's probably what he did for the first little while. But over time, he got past that, the berating of himself, and he started to ponder the words that Gabriel spoke. And he, he poured over the scriptures. Remember, he was a priest. He was in vocational ministry. And he poured over the Old Testament, over the scriptures, and it slowly began to dawn on him, man, incredible things are about to happen. So that when his tongue is finally loosed and he can finally let out all the stuff that's been bottled up inside of him all this time, he does not say, guess what? You'll never believe what happened to me. I was in the temple and then Gabriel showed up and he blasted me with light and it was, it was crazy, man. He doesn't say that at all. He doesn't even start talking about his kid. He doesn't say, look at my boy. I had a boy. I had a son, and his name is John, and you all think that's weird because there's no Johns in my family, but that's because I was visited by an angel, and he said that my son was going to be so spectacular. He was going to be special in the history of the world. He doesn't do that either. When his tongue is loosed, the first thing Zechariah says is, Benedictus. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He praises God. 
He sings this beautiful song recorded in these verses in Luke chapter 1 that probably took him months, all those months to prepare as he interpreted the Old Testament in light of Gabriel's words and he crafted every word exactly the way he wanted it to be and boom, he sings this glorious hymn. Now I said last week, the same thing I'm going to say to you this week, my goal in this whole series is to make you amazed about Christmas. I was at a wedding yesterday, Matt and Adriana's wedding, and I, I said to them as we read 1 Corinthians 13, I said, sometimes what happens to us is we become so familiar with something, it doesn't have any impact on us anymore. And Christmas is totally like that. Year after year after year after year, we experience it so that the punch of Christmas doesn't hit us anymore. Well, I'm hoping that we'll get hit again this morning. And we'll be amazed by Christmas this morning. And to do that, we're going to look at basically two major headings. We're going to look at the silence of Zechariah. We're going to look at the song of Zechariah. So let's look at the silence or think a bit about the silence of Zechariah a a little bit more. We already have a bit. Let's do it a little bit more. As I mentioned, Zook's... Zook? Zechariah's silence is due to a rebuke. That's where Zook came from, Okay. It was due to a rebuke. Gabriel rebuked Zechariah, and that's why he went silent. And there's some lessons that we can learn just in the fact that Zechariah doubted Gabriel and was plunged into silence. And this is the first one. There's two. Here's the first one. Even the best doubt sometimes. Even the best doubt sometimes. You see, Zechariah was a very godly man. Earlier in the, in the chapter, in verse 6, it says this, they, this is about Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. That doesn't mean that they were perfect. It does mean, though, that they were devout. They were serious about their faith. They practiced it with a lot of energy. And they were blameless in the sense that they did keep God's law as best they could. So, so here is this guy who is a very serious believer and, and in vocational ministry, right? He's a priest. His job is to speak to people about God and to intercede with God uh, on their behalf. He's, he's in that religious kind of context all the time. And then top on, on top of that, when he is in that space in the holy place, and Gabriel meets him, Zechariah is visited by a a celestial being. Any of you guys ever been visited by a celestial being? I haven't. Maybe I did in a dream, like a sleeping dream, but never like in my waking moments did I like, boom, there is an angel right in front of me, talking to me, shining brighter than the sun, I don't know what their voice would sound like. I'm sure they're extremely beautiful and powerful looking. I mean, you'd think that if you were visited by an angel and you were a priest who worked in the temple and in the synagogues on a regular basis and you were a devout follower of God, you would think that you would be the last person to doubt. But you're wrong. Zechariah doubts. Zechariah doubts. Even the best doubts sometimes. Listen, repeated faithfulness does not make you immune to doubt. Just because 
you come to church regularly, you read your Bible regularly, you pray regularly, all those kinds of things, that does not make you immune to doubt. Don't get complacent about your faith and think, well, I've arrived. I believe it. I know it's true. I'm doing the practices. I'm in the rhythm. Repeated faithfulness does not make you immune to doubt. Neither does religious practice. As, we, as I just said, you know, you're, you're, you're doing churchy things. That doesn't mean that you're, you're never going to experience difficulty or hardship or things in your life that cause you to wonder. And finally, even this is, this is the one that really blows my mind. Even answers to long-awaited prayers do not make you immune to doubt. Think about it. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, what's so miraculous about the fact that they're having a baby is that they're super duper old. Now, for a Jew who knows his Old Testament, that should not have been such a, like, whoa, we're going to have a baby? That's never happened before. God did that all the time to people who were old or people who were barren. He opened their wombs and amazing things happened. But the point is this. He answered this prayer and that did not make Zechariah immune to doubt. And I have really wondered, what's up with that? Like, how is that possible? This is the best I got, and I'm not saying this is absolutely sure, but I I got a sneaking suspicion this is true. Only because it's, I think, true of my own heart, and I don't think I'm all that different from most people. Too often, friends, I think our prayers are actually rooted in doubt, not faith. Right? You say them because you're supposed to say them. But do you really, really believe it deep down? Or or do you say it sort of more like a Hail Mary? You know what a Hail Mary is, all you football fans, right? The end of the game, you need to win by a touchdown. You're 60 yards away from the end zone, so the quarterback, he he gets into the pocket, he takes the ball, everybody runs downfield in the end zone, and he just hucks that sucker up and hopes against hope that something amazing is going to happen. It's a Hail Mary. You don't expect that that ball will get caught. Well, I got to confess, sometimes in my own life, that's how I pray. And so what ends up happening is, is that when you're surprised by the answer, you go, There's got to be some other reason for that. Friends, if you doubt, if you struggle with doubt, if you've been going to church for a long, long time, if you've been here, this is your first time here, and you're like, I don't even know if any of this stuff is true. Maybe all you people drank the Kool-Aid. You're doubting too. Regardless, you're in good company. You're in good company. Even the best doubt sometimes. But that doesn't mean, okay, that doesn't mean it's okay to doubt. Don't misunderstand. Misery may love company, but that doesn't mean that it's okay for us to be miserable. Because Gabriel does rebuke him. Gabriel tells him, this is what's going to happen. He says, I can't believe it. It sounds too good to be true. You should prove it to me. And Gabriel doesn't say, I understand, Zechariah. I know it's hard for you, right? You're old. Uh, these things are very, very rare, and I, I get it that you're having a difficult time swallowing this. Oh, no, Gabriel brings the smackdown on Zechariah. What do you mean you don't believe me? I am Gabriel. 
I stand in the presence of God. If you're not going to believe me, who will you believe? Because of what you have done, you will be silent. Here's lesson number two about Zechariah's silence, and it's a doozy, okay? God disciplines his people so that they will know his blessing. See, Zechariah's silence, which was discipline, is a blessing, not a curse. There's evidence of that in the song itself, and we'll get to that for a minute, but, but you've got to understand, you, God's discipline, friends, is a blessing, not a curse. You know, there's a place in, in Hebrews where the author of the Hebrews, in chapter 12, he says something incredible. He says this, this is verses 6 and 7, he says, "'The Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives.'" It is for discipline that you have, you have to, excuse me, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? What Hebrews is saying is this, when you get disciplined by God for your doubts and your unbelief, it's a sign that God loves you. Now, when I tell you that a parent shows their child that they love them through discipline. Everybody here who's a parent says, oh, I totally get that. I know that because I can tell you one thing. The last thing I want to do is, is like discipline my kid. No parent wants to discipline their kid. It's the, the lousy part of being a mom or dad, right? But it's in those moments when you do the hard thing of disciplining your kid, it's in those moments that you are, are willing to, to take their anger, take their resentment in return, take their, all their backlashes, you absorb it and you take it and you stick to the discipline. Why? Because you deeply, deeply love them and deeply, deeply want what's best for them. And as a parent, when I say, yeah, you know, God disciplines his children, you say, yes, that's what parents do. But when we think about God doing that to us, we don't like it. We like God disciplining our children <laughs> or maybe our siblings or maybe our friends or maybe our neighbor. Whoever needs a good straightening out, we're okay with God disciplining them, but we don't want God to discipline us because we want to be in charge, right? We don't like God's discipline because we want to be in charge. Let me ask you this, or no, no, I won't ask you this. I will just tell you this, and if... This freaks you out and you can't hear the rest of the sermon because of what I'm about to say, that's just fine. Have you never been disciplined by God? If you've never been disciplined by God, I encourage you to wrestle with this question. Are you a believer? Because he is more committed to your holiness than he is to your happiness. And he will discipline you if, he, if you are his kid. You can be sure of that. Because he loves you. Logical conclusion, if I'm never being disciplined by God ever, am I in a father-son, father-daughter relationship with him at all? Like when, that, when I thought of that, that just really freaked me out. And it got me thinking. Uh, thank God I've been disciplined a lot. Whew. I didn't like it, but I'm so thankful for it. Now we're going to look at Zechariah's song, okay? Zechariah's silence, Zechariah's song. Because in the song, Zechariah shows what he learned. 
In verses 68 and 69, he says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God... Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, again, imagine if you had his experience, right? Let's say you came to all these profound truths the way he did over this nine-month silence. That's fine. But you have to wait nine months to share what happened with your family. Like, You went into the temple, everything was fine, you came out, everything's messed up. What happened in there? You're the only one who knows and you can't explain it to everybody because you're a deaf mute. As soon as your voice is loosed, wouldn't you want to to spill the beans on exactly what happened? Zechariah doesn't do that. He immediately goes to something else. He goes to God. He starts describing, describing God and describing God's redemption He says, this prophecy is true. He says, this Messiah is coming. And he says this, imagine this, amazingly enough, he says it all in the past tense as if it's all happened already. God has raised up a horn of salvation. He has brought his redemption upon his people. It's a done deal. This is a guy who just months earlier was being told a very little miracle. You're going to have a baby. And he said, no, that can't be. And now he's describing a humongous miracle, the redemption of God's people that they have waited for for century upon century upon century upon century, the revelation of this Messiah figure that is really, really mysterious and they don't understand who it is but, and they're always looking for him but he's finally going to arrive, he's going to put everything right and Zechariah talks like it's a completely done deal. It's a sure thing. He's been chastised, he's been strengthened... What I'm saying is he has moved from doubt to incredible faith in the course of those nine months. Second thing is, what does he sing about, okay? He sings about how God redeemed his people. Verse 69, he mentions this thing called a horn of salvation, right? He has raised up a horn of salvation. Now, he also says that uh, this horn of salvation has been raised up in the house of his servant. It's an indication that, that Zechariah knows that, that this Messiah is someone other than his son, at the very least. Maybe he already knows about what's happened with Mary. We don't know. But in any case, he knows it's not his son. Now, what's this horn thing, though? What's this horn that's all about? Is he talking about a musical instrument like a tuba? Of course not. He's not talking about that. It's an Old Testament image, and it's a very rich Old Testament image that's meant to to give you a picture of incredible strength, incredible power, right? What What was a common animal of strength in Israel at the time? It was an ox, right? Oxes are big. They got these big horns, and when an ox goes, an ox goes berserk, they can do incredibly destructive power. They have incredible destructive power. Have you ever watched uh, those nature movies where they show rams, like mountain rams, right, with, the, with the, the horns, like on the front of a ram truck, you know, that kind of set of horns? You know, those people who don't know nature, you only know technology. Um, so when these rams, when they're going to fight, there's two parts to the fight, right? There's something called the address, and then there's the assault, and the address is when the rams, like, they rear up. They get raised up. They rear up on their hind legs, right? 
And then the assault is when they come down and they, boom, they bash into one another. And while you're watching it, you're just like, whoa, and a matador in a ring, before the bull is about to charge, they, they do something interesting. Like everybody says, you know, they, they remember they do that. But actually what they do is they look up and they snort and then they put their head down and then they charge. And the picture that Zechariah is giving us is, is this picture of this Messiah saying, or God saying, I'm coming. I am coming to bring an assault. Now, in the Old Testament, okay, only twice is this horn of salvation used, uh, or this horn used as a, as, as a, as a, um, a vehicle for salvation. And in those two times, it's always used for God, only for God. But here, Zechariah is using it for this redeemer, He's using it for Jesus. Now, this is what I want you to do, is let this sink in for a second. What picture of Christmas do we typically have? We have this picture of this cute, little, vulnerable, weak, helpless, innocent, yummy-smelling infant, right? And of course, that makes sense because that's how Jesus came. The incarnation is about that. But at the same time, Christmas means that in, in that baby, in that little innocent, vulnerable, helpless little thing, like I have a friend who, she, whenever she looks at a little infant's uh, fingers, she's like, they look like baby carrots. You could just boom, snap them off. They're just so small. I know that's freaky, but she's a normal person, honest. What, what she's getting at is just how weak and, 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 and fragile they are. And they are totally but what Zechariah is, is, is showing us here is that all the raw, untamable, dangerous power of the eternal, infinite, almighty creator of the universe is in that little baby. I, I got no illustration for you. I racked my brain. I don't know, like a, a nuclear bomb disguised as a kid's toy? That's the best I got and it's not even close. Third thing, what does he come to do? He's come to redeem. Zechariah sings in his song, he, he, he sings to his son, he starts singing to his, his son, he says, you child will be called the prophet of the most high, for you will be, go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. What? In the forgiveness of their sins. And then he keeps going and he says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who what? Sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. There's two enemies, or there's a disease and an enemy, I guess you could say. There's two problems that he describes. One is sin, the other is death. The disease causes the enemy, right? The disease gives birth to the enemy. And this is the testimony of the Bible, okay? Whether we like it or not, this is what the Bible says. Listen, I'm just going to bombard you with some passages. All sin and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, verse 23. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, 1 John 1, verse 8. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, verse 23. Because of sin, we face death death. But there's more than that. There's, there's this adversary, right? There's this enemy. There's this thing, this being called the devil. 
And the Bible says that, that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to de- devour. 1 Peter 5 verse 8. His is the God of this world and he blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. We have these two enemies caused by sin or, or it's not that the devil is caused by sin but the devil uses sin as our enemy and death is the consequence of sin as our enemy. We all die because of our sin and the devil makes sure that happens to us unless we have a horn of salvation. And Zechariah is saying there is one. Jesus is that horn. Uh, Sometimes I, I watch these uh, animal attack YouTube videos. You guys ever do that when you're supposed to be working? You know, like, and usually the best ones are lion, right? Like lion takes down zebra, lion takes down whatever, right? And the more you see, the more you're like, man, that lion, they crush. Like, they always get their man, it seems. Well, they don't always get their man. But they seem so incredibly deadly. They can take down anything. And it's, it's scary to think, right? Like nothing beats a lion. And here the Bible is saying, the devil's a lion. He's prowling around seeking whom he may devour. Now I'll tell you one thing. This is really neat. I, I, I came across a video on YouTube of a pride of lions attacking a water buffalo. Water buffalo's got these big horns. And uh, they always try to attack from behind, but the, the buffalo's always spinning around trying to make sure that they can't get behind because they face the horns. And one lion, you know, he jumped a little too early or he timed his jump wrong and he went at the, at the buffalo and the buffalo turned and next thing you know, he impales this lion on his horn. And then he starts going. Like, I know this is gross, but this is really good. It's a good illustration. He starts going back and forth and he tore this lion up. He tore this lion up. That's Christmas. Put that on your greeting card, people. (laughs) Jesus is the horn that was raised up to tear apart our enemy in a way that nobody expected. Because this horn was raised up on a cross, but as he was impaled on a piece of wood, he was impaling our enemy, giving him his mortal wound and putting to death, death itself in his own death so that we could be free. One more thing. It says in verse 78, the second half of verse 78 and 79, it says this beautiful thing. It says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Look, some of you, right now, everything I just said, you go, I'm not uplifted. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm down. The darkness, it seems so dark. But this beautiful image is an image of dawn, okay? Imagine, imagine you are hiding in a forest in the middle of the night and you can hear the predator prowling about trying to get to you. And this is a, a nighttime predator 
and they are strong, and they are powerful, and you're absolutely terrified, and you're thinking to yourself, if I can just get through the night, if I can just stay awake, stay alive through the night, I will be okay. And then you look to the east, and you see a glimmer of light, and you think, dawn is coming. And as you watch the the light rise in the east and then the sun itself rise in the east, your hope begins to build and build and build and build because you know, if I make it to to the day, I'll be okay. Well, friends, we are living in the sunrise time. Between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ, we live in the dawn. When you look to the incarnation, when you look to the cross of Jesus Christ, when you think about his resurrection... You remember your day of salvation, it is here and it is just dawning. And you may only have a glimmer of it now, but it will shine as bright as the noonday sun one day. And you can find great comfort and hope in that. Be amazed by Christmas. Put a wild ox impaling a lion on your greeting cards. And praise God. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for coming in the form you did as the horn of salvation to rescue us from our enemies. Give us faith to see its truth and enable us to walk with hope and with joy and with certainty, even in the midst of the most trying of circumstances. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.